Welcome to Mighty Women, Season 1. Listen in to hear the stories of influential women and get leadership advice you can use in your own career. I'm your host, Riley Herman. Find us on MightyWomenPodcast.com. Today, nearly 51% of medical students are female. But when Dr. Ann Thompson graduated medical school, the proportion of women graduates was only 10%. Dr. Thompson went on to become a pioneer in the field of pediatric critical care medicine. Her accomplishments range from being president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, only the second woman to hold that position, to lecturing internationally on her work. Dr. Thompson started out with a passion for science. She contemplated doing a joint MD-PhD program before making the decision to pursue her medical degree at Tufts University School of Medicine. After finishing her pediatric residency training at the Tufts New England Medical Center and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, known as TROP, she trained in anesthesiology at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania and did a fellowship in pediatric critical care and research at TROP, the place where the field of pediatric critical care was born. Critical care is synonymous with intensive care. And a lot of people know about neonatology, which primarily focuses on um, premature infants, but in any case, newborn infants, even if they're not premature. Pediatric critical care, pediatric intensive care, takes care of children, infants and children from where the neonatologists leave off to young adults. And we take care of children with all kinds of illnesses, surgery, trauma that's life-threatening. And so it could be anything from a child with life-threatening pneumonia or overwhelming infection to heart surgery or transplant surgery. It could be really anything that requires moment-to-moment observation and care in an ICU. The path led Dr. Thompson to bring her passion to Pittsburgh. After I finished training, I (laughs) I had wanted to stay in Philadelphia. And while I was, and I had been, I thought I had been promised a job when I finished the training. And when I finished it, they didn't really have a place for me. Uh, So my by then, husband um, and I um, started looking again all over the country. One of the challenges of a two-career marriage is finding a place that allows people each to have their niche. Um, In um, Pittsburgh, we, we looked in a lot of places and it would be good for me but not for him and vice versa. In Pittsburgh, uh, there was an opportunity, and it looked good for both of us. It didn't actually turn out that way, but that's how it looked. Actually, there's a kind of a fun story about that, because 
Pittsburgh had a program. It was also one of the older ones, but it was broken. And um, the hospital knew that they needed new people and a lot of changes. So when I interviewed, and this is like one year after fellowship, um, there wasn't a chief. And I liked the people a lot. Um, I liked the place, but I didn't want to work in a place with no chief. So I took a deep breath and asked my mentor in Philadelphia whether he thought I could be the chief. And I think he took a deep breath and maybe felt a little bad that he hadn't given me a job. Um, I don't know that, I just wonder. And um, he said, yeah, maybe so. And so I wrote to the person here and said that I didn't want to come to a program that didn't have leadership and would they consider making me chief. <laughs> And I imagine a whole lot of people taking deep breaths. Um, but they, the, program, the, the specialty was so young in those days that there were only about a half dozen people in the whole country who were senior to me, and they'd already tried all of them, and none of them were moving. So um, they gave me that opportunity. So I came here to be chief you know, a year out of fellowship. <laughs> Granted, it was a chief of a division of two, um, so there wasn't a lot to be in charge of. Um, but it really was the beginning of an extraordinary long period of my life. Can you tell me about some of the challenges you faced in your career? Well, one of them I mentioned, which is thinking I had a promise of a job in a place I wanted to stay in. I guess I didn't exactly overcome that. I, I went somewhere else. In retrospect, that opened an opportunity that would never have been available to me um, where I trained. Um, certainly, being a woman meant I needed to learn ways of asking for things or insisting on things that didn't upset people to the point where they would, just as a matter of principle, not give me what I needed. Um, there's many times when I said something in a room full of men, typically, and nobody paid any attention. And five minutes later, some man would say the same thing in slightly different words, and everybody paid attention. Um, I learned to not bother being insulted by that, uh, but on occasion to point out um, that I had said that five minutes ago and wasn't anybody listening. Um, it took me a while to develop the nerve for that. Um, I learned that I had to ask for things that 
I thought would just come. Um, that wasn't easy for me. And I also worked with a number of extremely difficult people who led other groups. You know, I described myself as a chief. That meant I was leading my group, which went from two at the beginning to now 20. Um, these all men were leaders of other specialty groups who were very used to being in charge and learning how to hold my own against them um, took a lot of practice. There were two things that my mentor <laughs> said, this is somebody in Philadelphia, was make sure you know more about the topic of a meeting than anybody else who's going to be there. I took that to heart and made sure I always was very well prepared. The other was hang on till your fingertips turn white and everyone else drops off. <laughs> and, um, I have thought about that so many times in the last 35, 40 years. I can't begin to tell you um, of just knowing that if what I wanted to do was important, I just needed to hang on. <laughs> um, but I I've had some pretty white fingertips on many occasions. I imagined that the transition from practicing medicine to academic leadership had to be pretty hard. I couldn't imagine having to leave spending every day with patients and families. The way it worked for me is that the two went together for a long time because as I, I was clinically very active and I loved the work. I loved the mix of the science and technology behind this particular kind of medicine, and then the opportunity to teach it. And I was always teaching a group of residents or fellows who were specializing in it. And then still another part of the, the work was taking care of the families. And these, you know, these families, as you well know, um, even if I knew that their child was gonna be okay, they didn't. Um, so that mix of very complicated medicine and taking care of people and teaching people was really a spectacular part of the work. Um, but the teaching was um, an important part of it and we developed a training program that many people considered the best in the country, and if not the best, certainly one of the top five. And so that academic piece was in there almost from the very beginning. I made the transition to part-time as an associate dean for faculty affairs and began to understand more how the medical school itself worked. And then, three years ago, 
uh, became the vice dean of the medical school. What's different, <laughs> the hours are very different. Um, I don't mind having had to give up 3 a.m. Um, but it's still teaching, it's still dealing with new people in medicine. It's still taking care of people at difficult times, not so much in their families, but in their careers now. Um, I probably never have the passion for this that I had for critical care, but it's very interesting and it's really important, so I really like it. What values guide your leadership practice? I've always tried to surround myself with really excellent people who have skills that are different from mine. Come to an agreement on just generally where we're going and then let them do what they're good at. I think as I built the program, in critical care that was not only academically and clinically successful, but it was a team of people who really, really liked to work together. I feel really proud of that. Um, I guess just identifying good people and setting them free is pretty much the way I've operated. What are the major challenges facing medical students and medical education today? Well, certainly one of the biggest challenges is that the pressures on medicine right now are enormous. And the distress physicians are feeling seems to be greater than it has ever been, at least in my professional life. You know, the newspapers, professional journals, everything is full of talk about burnout and depression. So I think figuring out ways to help students, young physicians, develop the resilience that they need is one big challenge. The other is figuring out how to change our system so that people aren't under such pressure. And I think the concern people have is that much of what drew them into medicine, opportunity to be with people, to take care of people, is kind of being lost in our way of practicing now. So finding a way to get back to that or new ways to get to that seems really important to me. The other huge challenge is that while we make all kinds of strides toward knowing more about disease and the science behind treatments, we still don't get those treatments to a huge fraction of our population and figuring out how to make sure people get what they need in terms of appropriate treatment and how to 
minimize the barriers to them getting it is something that feels critically important to me. Dr. Thompson has extensive experience on boards and councils. She's chair of the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators Network, former chair of the Subboard of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine of the American Board of Pediatrics, and a past member of the RRC for Pediatrics of the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education and the Board of Directors of the World Federation of Pediatric Intensive and Critical Care Societies. Whew, that was a lot to say. <laughs> I asked her for her thoughts on what it takes to be an effective team member. Well, I have served on a number of professional organizations and um, councils and boards of those organizations. And those, I think, require having a pretty clear idea of what those groups might be doing, what bringing new ideas to them. Um, being persistent, hanging on till your fingertips turn white. Um, working hard. I mean, if you're one of the people on one of these boards, there's a whole lot of work to do, and you have to be willing to add that to the rest of your life. Um, I don't know. I guess the other thing is that you need to just experience it as fun. Fun to work with these people from different parts of the profession, different parts of the country. Um, I always found it uh, kind of amazing to find out what, what the range of things that people were involved in was. Um, you know, I, I've worked on umpteen committees, and I usually have liked them because it's like, wow, look at that. There's this person who lives just down the hall from me, and I never knew what he or she was doing until I served on this committee. And that's just kind of like opening a new piece of the world. What do you think is your greatest accomplishment so far? Well, aside from my son, um, who I would put at the top of the list, um, I think developing the pediatric critical care program at Children's. We built a program that went from being pretty nondescript, two faculty to 20, one fellow to 15, no research to I think being the best funded research program in the country and best clinical outcomes, um, well, two standard deviations better than predicted, not my data, national data. And we've populated programs. Our graduates have gone off to run their own programs, populate programs all over the country. And we took care of a huge number of kids and their families, and that all just feels really important to me.
What has helped you grow as a leader in your field? Well, certainly practice, um, making countless mistakes and not making them too many more times. Um, asking for advice from people I respect. Getting input from all kinds of people involved in a program or a decision that needed to be made. I think those are the most important things. I'm pretty good at reading what's going on in a, in a room. And if I'm feeling a lot of tension or can see that somebody's not happy, I've made a point of trying to understand what's going on before it bubbles out of control. I've not gotten that right every time, I can assure you. I, I can think of several, several moments when I thought, really, you know, how did you manage to miss that? Or, you know, how could you not have consulted him or her? But in general, I've been pretty good at that. What advice do you have for women pursuing a career in medicine? Recognizing that you may not be able to, as they say, have it all, but you can have a whole lot. Um, figure out what's really important to you, not what somebody else says should be important to you, but what is important to you. And then really work at structuring your life around that. Um, I'm quoting somebody, but in addition to the advice that I was given that I mentioned earlier, about being knowledgeable about whatever you're doing in a meeting and being persistent. <laughs> I think women need to be relentlessly pleasant. That um, I learned that from Linda Babcock, but I think, um, I don't think it's original with her. Um, in any case, it's you need to work hard, you need to decide what's really important for you. Um, and then I think your public face needs to be um, relentlessly pleasant. Dr. Thompson left us with some final thoughts on her life as a doctor. I feel incredibly fortunate. I have worked hard. I do have a set um, of skills that have served me and some other people well. But I was fortunate enough to pick a career that has been so meaningful to me. Um, I just hope that other people will find 
whatever they choose, but particularly if they choose medicine, that they'll find that because that sustains you through so much. Um, people have heard me say this a lot, but I feel like the combination of that fast-paced, incredibly interesting and complicated medicine and the chance to see patients and families through a difficult time and share their stories, their hopes, their fears is an incredible privilege. Mighty Women is recorded and produced in Pittsburgh. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Mighty Women Podcast and check back weekly for new episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud.